0: Hello, and welcome to Public Key, the new podcast from Chainalysis. This is your host. Ian Andrews. Today, we've got an amazing episode. I'm joined by my colleague, Brian Carter. He's one of the team at Chainalysis responsible for tracking and understanding the ransomware threat and ecosystem. This is an area that I was not versed in, if you talked to me two years ago, but I've spent a lot of time reading and trying to get smarter. So I've really been looking forward to this episode. Opportunity uh, for, for me to spend 30 minutes catching up with Brian. And diving deep on on some of the uh, I think the biggest topic in cybercrime, cyber threat landscape that is is really on the minds of almost every IT organization in the corporate enterprise world. So, Brian, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: Now, I think if we if we surveyed a, you know, an assortment of crypto compliance professionals uh, or even just generally chief information security officers, most people are probably familiar with the term ransomware. But perhaps we could start with sort of a summary or an overview of just how big a problem is this and is it is it isolated to crypto companies or should everybody be paying attention to what's happening in ransomware?
1: Oh gosh, yeah. It is definitely an everybody problem. There are no enterprises that are too small for it or that aren't attractive to potential uh, ransomware incidents. And then it goes up to the, the most well-resourced enterprises that you can imagine that spend a, a, you know, a ridiculous amount of money on IT security. They're still having to deal with this. So yeah, there's no, I would say, target uh, market for ransomware or target victim or like specific victim. Yeah, it affects everyone.
0: If you're on the Internet, you need to be concerned about ransomware.
1: Yeah, even individuals, you know, ransomware uh, years ago when we first started learning about ransomware, it was mostly an individual problem, you know, and I, I don't know if you remember this, but there were, there was even a uh, public broadcasting Spot about a woman in New York whose computer got ransomware, and she had to go find cryptocurrency at an ATM somewhere, and her whole journey and dealing with the the criminals responsible for it was a pretty interesting story. Today, mostly what we read about are five million dollar ransoms, you know, and that's a big part of what we're spending our time on at Chainalysis on the ransomware crew.
0: Well, and I think this really entered the broad public consciousness last summer, at least in the United States, when the colonial pipeline was brought down. I think they had to, to actually stop supplying gas uh, to the East Coast because the, the corporate IT network had been compromised and they worried about that spilling over into the pipeline control network. But this has been going on for a long, a long time, right? The story you referenced was many years ago, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. Uh, It has been going on for a while, and it's uh, it's not a brand new problem. It's one that's only grown, though, in the last few years to problems like Colonial Pipeline that everyone outside of cryptocurrency now knows about this problem, you know, and cybersecurity.
0: Now, I have to imagine there's no easy solution. Otherwise, it would have already been taken. But with the millions of dollars that every company out there, you know, collectively spending annually on tools to prevent breaches and various types of, of uh, cyber attacks. Why is this still happening? Is there no solution here? I've seen some people even suggest, oh, we should just ban cryptocurrency. That'll be a solve. That seems like an unlikely one to me, but can you diagnose maybe some of the the vectors? What's the, the soft targets maybe that attackers are going after?
1: Yeah, it's we could do a podcast just on this question, Ian, and it's it's kind of become uh, a soapbox topic for myself and people who've been through a breach or or a ransomware incident before or working for companies that deal with this on a, on a regular basis, there, there's a couple of really significant problems. One is that frameworks that we get from governments and industry that tell us what to do, how to secure our networks, they're not very specific and they don't tell us to do the kinds of things that we need to do to prevent ransomware. And second to that, companies are spending an amazing amount of money on technology that it, it's helpful in some way but it's not perfect, right? 60%, 70% effective in detecting brand new malware samples. But if you're that first person to get it, you're going to have a bad day, right? It's unfortunately a problem where there are many vendors out there offering solutions that don't solve the problem. You know what I mean? And some of, my, some of my friends in the industry will be mad at me for saying this kind of thing, but it's it's really the truth that you can't really buy a product or hire a company that's going to pull a lever and protect you against ransomware. There's a handful of things that need to be done that are very specific and we're just not doing those things, right?
0: From my previous career priority chain analysis, we spent a lot of time talking about the fact that most corporate breaches are not through magical zero-day exploits that no one's ever seen before, but they're a result of exploiting vulnerabilities that are well-known, well-documented, with remediations available. And for a variety of reasons, you know, the corporate IT team either isn't allowed to or isn't able to keep up with the pace of systems patching. And so you, you have these you know, well-known and documented vulnerabilities that are ultimately exploited. Is that consistent with what you're saying?
1: Yeah, I would take it a step further and say that uh, many of the ransomware incidents, probably a majority, don't involve uh, a name numbered vulnerability at all. Uh, they're really kind of using the tried and true techniques of sending uh, office documents that contain scripts like you know macros that will download and execute malware that is not detected by antivirus that there's no vulnerability to patch in there. You can change your configuration for Microsoft Office to prevent that from happening, but there, there's no patch that somebody missed uh, deploying, right? Uh, the other part of that is really setting up uh, multi-factor authentication for all of our remote access points. And that would be the VPN that every corporate environment has, as well as you know Microsoft Remote Desktop or Citrix environments that might have been forgotten because they're they're there for a business partner or something like that and not really part of our kind of range or scope of things that we assess on a continuous basis. But yeah, those two things are the biggest part of the ransomware incidents that that our team uh, learns about. And then a smaller part of that pie is devoted to vulnerabilities in systems that can be accessed remotely and that have a, a missing patch, like you described. But yeah, zero days are pretty rare.
0: It's amazing to me kind of the balance of time spent talking about zero days versus the, can we improve the process of almost like tech debt cleanup around maintenance of the core systems? And although your your point there about people still getting compromised via uh, rogue macros in attachments is a little frightening. I didn't realize that that was still, still widespread.
1: This is a huge problem, and we talk a lot about incidents um, that, that we've learned about came from malware that was delivered you know, using that path. Either the Office document is attached or there's a link in the body of an email that takes you to an Office document that uh, executes a script that downloads the malware and gives you know, this ransomware crew access to the enterprise.
0: You know, recently we had our friends from Flashpoint Intel on the podcast, and we were talking about the takedown of the darknet marketplace Hydra. One of the things, you know, Hydra was, I I think, most prominently known for drugs trafficking. Maybe their second largest business was in selling compromised credentials and access to corporate networks in a lot of cases. Have we seen that that is also a vector for executing a ransomware attack?
1: Yeah, so uh, that, that's a fantastic kind of pivot to this problem of compromised credentials where uh, there's many markets out there uh, that all they do is sell a username and a password for anything you can think of. And this is primarily people looking for free access to Netflix or Spotify or something like that. But if you look hard enough in there, you'll find corporate VPNs, Citrix, uh, RD Web, and other ways to access a corporate enterprise. And there's, there's dozens of uh, people, criminals we call initial access brokers, who are getting these credentials, logging into these systems in a very tedious but methodical way and finding the best candidates to sell in crime forums and marketplaces that, it, that in some cases lead to ransomware. Yeah, the the compromised credentials market is huge. Yeah, that's a big part of it and that that leads to that remote access uh sort of vector to ransomware.
0: That's kind of incredible. I'm I'm familiar with the the website uh have i been pawned the Krebs I think Krebs security operates It's
1: Troy Hunt.
0: Oh, that's right. It's Troy. It sounds like we almost need a corporate centric version of that to be be tracking for corporate credentials. I don't know how much that's that's falling in Troy's work.
1: That is a thing. And you can actually, as a corporate entity with a handful of domains, you can go and search all those domains using uh, Troy's service. You can, And you can also pay for commercial services that will alert you whenever your company's domains show up in collections of compromised credentials. And Troy service is really awesome, especially for an individual, but he doesn't collect logs from malware that that rips off your saved passwords in your web browser and these other kinds of things that other companies will index and, and make available to you.
0: When we talk about scale and this ransomware problem, I know, you know, Chainalysis goes to great lengths to try and track some of this. And obviously all these statistics it's a little bit of a moving target. Not everybody has strong incentives to report when they've been ransomware. We try and take the approach of looking at payment activity on the blockchain and and going back upstream, even when potentially a victim hasn't reported. We we can do some analysis. So I think the number that uh, we've identified so far was about just short of seven hundred million dollars worth of payments made by victims. Uh, across all of 2021. That is a dramatic increase, orders of magnitude larger. Any sense of what's driving this? Is this just such a profitable and easy opportunity for for criminals to make money that they're piling into this? Or is there something else going on here?
1: I think you hit it. There, It's just an attractive sort of criminal enterprise to be a part of today. Uh, it's hard to ignore it. I've been a a threat analyst for a long time, and it wasn't always like this. You know, there weren't always these huge million dollar opportunities for criminals who had uh, cybersecurity skills or IT skills or or something to transition to a criminal role. Today, everybody wants to be in ransomware, especially if you live in a country that doesn't respect international requests for assistance in law enforcement. And so, yeah, I mean, there's just this sort of promise of these million-dollar payouts, I think, is what's most attractive and is what's driving a lot of criminals to this enterprise, right? But I'll tell you, too, from a lot of our research and experience, and also, thanks to some of these amazing leaks that That have happened in the ransomware space recently. That we know that there's this huge sort of bottom tier of kind of entry level or middle experience criminals who aren't really making very much money at this. They're making $1,000 a month or $2,000 if they're lucky, uh, sometimes not getting paid by their criminal bosses. And then there's very, very few people at the top, you know, Evil Corp and some others. That are driving Lambos and living in big houses and stuff like that. So it's sort of an MLM of the criminal underground. That there's a lot of people that want to get into it and and sort of all chase this promise of money and and respect or whatever you whatever else they might think they're going to get from that. But it's really a a very small number of people at the top of this pyramid that are making significant amount of money.
0: There we go. If we've got any uh, potential aspiring ransomware cybercriminals listening to the podcast, don't believe the hype. The money is not going to flow your way like you've been promised. Find a more legitimate path to use your technology skills. It seems like in all seriousness, the um, professionalization happening, I know a lot of people who are not in tech and when they think about ransomware or just generally cyber criminals and hackers, they kind of imagine the movie depiction of them. Lone wolf individual sitting in a room with lots of monitors, typing very quickly on keyboards and <laughs> you know, magically breaking through firewalls, right? You and I know that's not the, the reality, but the thing that, that does seem interesting is we've gone from kind of Loosely affiliated individuals uh, to it seems like some fairly well structured organizations and a number of which have, have kind of even developed brands that are widely recognized.
1: I'll say that there are some uh, diverging opinions on on who they really are, how they got their start. But we know from doing a lot of analysis that there's a particular chain of events that started with a malware family called Emotet. Uh, if you got this Emotet from an office document on your machine at work, uh, that would probably lead to another malware family that was had greater number of capabilities to allow them to look into you know what systems were on your network and everything called TrickBot. At some point, criminals responsible for managing Crip- TrickBot uh, decided that ransomware would be a good way to monetize the access that they had to, you know, thousands of corporate machines around the world, and started using it that way. We know from uh, the recent leaks, as well as you know, doing a lot of malware analysis, that that these steps have changed over the years. You know, Ryuk is gone. There's also been experiments with other, you know, first stage and second stage. Uh, We also see a commercial pen testing uh, or red team tool called Cobalt Strike being used in there quite a lot. One of the things we know from uh, studying these actors for a long time is that they often have a process where somebody will look into all of the TrickBot infections in their backend database, so they have thousands of machines that are infected with TrickBot, they'll look through there and say, oh, this is a large corporate environment. They have X number of employees and Y amount of revenue, according to zoominfo.com let's go ahead and go and mark this one for work, which will lead to ransomware one form or the other. There's lots of variations and we know from the leaks and everything that they sometimes take a different approach here and there, but for the most part, it's followed this malware as a foothold and followed by these different post-exploitation tasks that lead to every Windows machine in the enterprise having ransomware and all the files locked.
0: I think we've done some analysis at in our crypto crime report that talks about how some of the affiliates of our evil, they aren't necessarily 100% loyal, right? They operate across networks. I think about it, you know, the analogy being a driver who is on both the Uber and Lyft networks at the same time.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's a great analogy. Yeah.
0: What's going on there? Like, is there a hierarchy in the organizations? Like, there's a small team that's kind of running the show. And then there's almost independent contractors that are are carrying out some of the attacks? How does that structure work?
1: Yeah, I think it's probably something like independent contractors. And I wouldn't say there's a hierarchy as much as there are people who know other people who are good at the job, who will recruit them into a team and they'll use whatever ransomware they think they can, they can use best. You know, there's a range of different capabilities that come in these ransomware groups. For some of these teams or crews, they may choose a ransomware family that will manage their cryptocurrency payments for them and do the negotiation for them and will give them the ransomware executable file so they don't really have to manage any of that part of it they just get a cut of the profit when it's done. And on the other side of that, there are some ransomware families that give the crews access to everything and they're doing everything themselves except writing the ransomware software themselves. Yeah, there's quite a range there. And these actors sort of bounce around from one to the other based on their availability, whether or not they're being treated well. We see disputes taking place in crime forums. I didn't get paid or they promised me this and, uh, and I didn't get as much as I expected, or they they failed the negotiation, you know all sorts of different disputes uh, and drama uh, around uh, these different ransomware as a service groups, and then they they fall in love with one and and tend to stick with it until it's no longer available, and then move on.
0: I love it. I'm picturing in my mind a reality TV series following the exploits of the ransomware team through their their darknet forum
1: posts. Yeah, we need to work on that, Ian. I think it would be fantastic. <laughs> I think for, for listeners who aren't familiar with the Emotet takedown, maybe take a moment to to Google Emotet takedown and click on the images tab of Google so that you can see what the inside of this criminal enterprise looked like. And it's just hoarder conditions with crummy old computers pieced together from, you know, like flea market parts, you know, over there on the floor is a stack of gold bricks, you know, <laughs> and... <laughs> <laughs> and so it's just fantastic. It would be a great reality show. I would watch it for sure.
0: One of the words that I've heard recently uh, come into the vernacular is this idea of the ransomware supply chain. Yeah. And and maybe a companion term I was hoping you'd explain is the ransomware kill chain. And I think this goes to like, how do we get our arms around this problem and constrain it or or eradicate it? Can you talk a little bit about what, what those words mean? And as an analyst, like how you you think about them?
1: I'll, I'll start with the supply chain. There's a lot of different capabilities and crimes that lead up to some enterprise having their files locked. Uh, we talked about compromised credentials. There's also this sort of foothold malware that I mentioned. That's a service that you can buy. You can buy uh, services that will spread that malware through spam. And you can also you know buy different services that will test whether or not your malware will be detected by antivirus and there's just you know there's a dozen or so different capabilities that the most successful criminal enterprises will probably use at some point along the way and so the the team I work on we're constantly Uh, Trying to keep informed about which different services are the most relevant and making sure we have those attributed in our tools. Yeah, it's a pretty interesting space to be in. These services come and go really quickly. And so it's a lot of effort Uh, reading all the forum posts every day and trying to see who's selling different services that might impact our customers or their customers, right?
0: It sounds like I, the analogy from my world in marketing. You know, we have a platform for collecting customer details and for emailing them regularly, and analyzing like performance of the website. So we've got a product for each one of these features. It sounds like you've got the analog in the in the ransomware world, where they've got a series of tools that they use to to build tests and measure the effectiveness of the software. Yeah, exactly. They're kind of software as a service, but for ransomware. Is it is it fair to say that all of of that technology, they're paying for it with cryptocurrency? Like as chain analysis, can we see these transactions happening on chain?
1: Yeah, that's the important part, and it's job security for me. You know, (laughs) these services come and go, as I mentioned, and so it's it's a constant effort to stay on top of the cryptocurrency or the financial footprint of all of these different uh, services. Some of them are pretty small. Some of them have you know collected millions of dollars, and and yeah, that's what we're trying to do. It's mainly Bitcoin, specifically. And, and we don't see a lot of use of altcoins necessarily, though there are services that, that will accept XMR or, to a lesser extent, uh, Litecoin and other altcoins like that. But it, it's, it's primarily Bitcoin. And even today, I, I hear people in the industry say, oh, you know, if they were smart, they, they'd use a privacy coin or something. And it's like, I, I think they know that. But it's a lot easier to buy Bitcoin today than it is Monero. And so just more people have it. They want to sell stuff and make money. So they accept Bitcoin. Uh, Sometimes they don't really know about how to protect themselves from surveillance when they use Bitcoin. And I call this the range of discipline or the range of OPSEC, or sometimes we jokingly say OOPSEC, because, you know, the more sophisticated and experienced criminals will they know what they're supposed to do, but they often choose not to protect themselves. And and will do really inexplicably obvious things that makes it makes it easy to to find their off ramp because they send directly to a compliant exchange or you know something like that and they they know they're not supposed to and I, it's either laziness or they live in a country where they're they're not anticipating any enforcement based on their activity and so there's no incentive to take the extra steps to prevent uh, surveillance of their cryptocurrency transactions so
0: their mistake. Yeah. Since I think our friends in in the world of law enforcement are starting to take this threat very seriously and and pursuing some interesting interesting takedowns. I'm curious, you know, with Hydra going away, we had this conversation uh, in that past episode where we were sort of speculating about where does all that commerce go, right? Because Hydra was hosting I think hundreds of different vendors. They are presumably still operating, but they need a new marketplace. I know one of the used to be biggest darknet marketplaces Alpha Bay has a, a rumored return to existence uh, starting back up like what's your sense of the landscape here particularly in this area you know supporting the ransomware ecosystem less so than the the drugs trafficking like where's the the epicenter heading with Hydra going offline?
1: With regard to Hydra specifically, the ransomware connection was really about money laundering and cashing out, and and less so about crime services that you might find on the smaller categories within the the market itself uh, that are you know that aren't drug related. And there isn't an obvious successor to that today, but there are a lot of options. I anticipate that there will be kind of a, a scattering to the winds of different. Uh, services that are used. you know we know from following different uh, ransomware groups that they have their favorite mixing services and things like that. They don't tend to use consistently. I don't know that there's an obvious successor for the the market itself. There are a number that are sort of jockeying for position there. And have very similar uh, websites that, that look almost indistinguishable from Hydra and offer the same categories of things that Hydra did, but there isn't an obvious, there isn't a like standout leader at this point.
0: I'm trying to predict the future so I'm going to keep asking that question. I want to know I want to know who the next biggest dark net marketplace is going to be. So we'll
1: we'll know who it is eventually, but there just hasn't been enough time for us to measure the transactions and stuff I think to to know that this one is definitely going to be it. The other side of that is that there are dozens of these markets and they come and go every day and they suck at managing their IT infrastructure or they just piss off their users and they just don't stick.
0: Brian, uh, this has been fascinating. One last question that I think I would be remiss not to ask is, if our listeners are working at a, a company and they're, they're responsible for thinking about how to keep themselves from being ransomware, what sort of advice here, uh, You know, what things should they be looking out for in their own IT infrastructure and user behavior and any recommendations?
1: Yeah, uh, four bullet points here. Fix macro security. Don't allow macros from the internet. Secondly, any remote access point, whether it's RDP, Citrix, VPN, any sort of web-based application, they should all have multi-factor authentication and meaningful multi-factor authentication. Third, I'll say backups need to be structured in a way that they can be restored quickly. One thing we hear from ransomware victims is that they did have backups. That they could restore and get all their data back but it would have taken a month to restore it so they end up paying the ransom anyway and and so being able to to bring ransomware into your continuity plans and disaster recovery plans to make sure that you're you're able to recover quickly enough to avoid millions of dollars in losses finally i think a good piece of advice if you have a management position in security in any company Write a, an apology letter to your customers for having had a breach and change your perspective on what it's like to go through that. And maybe maybe that'll help you prioritize, you know, spending and how to do assessments within the enterprise. Yeah.
0: That's uh that's a great recommendation. Write write the press release and the apology letter. You never you never want to actually write, just to to shift perspective. That backups one is also a great, a great point. I mean, I I remember the days when Taking backups was not standard procedure, and think you were backing systems up, and then you'd go to restore in the in the heat of a moment and find out the backups were no good. But this was back in the days when backups were done to tape, sort of pre-cloud era. And uh, but this this idea of being able to quickly restore as part of the business continuity plan, I think that's a, that's a great point to really focus on. So I I love that. We'll close there. This has been terrific, Brian. Really appreciate it. And we'll, uh, we'll look to have you on the, on the show again as, uh, as new, new threats emerge. It's going to be great.
1: Thanks a lot. I'll start working on the screenplay for our reality show. <laughs> Perfect. Thanks for listening to
0: this episode of Public Key. We're releasing new episodes weekly. So if you liked what you heard, then don't forget to subscribe, review, and share. While you wait on the next episode, here's something to think about. On May 22nd, it will be the 12th anniversary of what has become known as Bitcoin Pizza Day. On this day in 2010, a Florida-based software developer spent 10,000 Bitcoin to buy two pizzas. At current prices, those pies cost about $300 million. Ouch.